Let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And uh, I want to continue the message, Great Faith Guided by Good Doctrine, that we began last week. Last week I told the story of my dad and I sailing from Montauk Point, Long Island, to Block Island, which is off of Rhode Island, and how when we got out there we had no visible us in the right direction so we reached our destination, and we needed the sails to uh, power us there. And I use that as a metaphor in the church. We need both the compass and the sail. We need the sail to move us forward. That's faith. We need faith to power us forward. It's God who powers us forward, but faith is the sail that receives the power of God to move us forward. And we need good doctrine to get us in the right direction because we've all seen where faith can go when we don't have good doctrine to direct it. So I want to continue that this morning, um, but I want to remind us first of something I shared last week because it is really the core of everything we're about as believers. We need both power and direction. We need both sail and compass. Hebrews 12 says we're to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus didn't love the cross. He endured the cross. The joy wasn't the cross. The joy was the resurrection and telling his disciples, including us, one day you're going to be here. The joy was reuniting us with the Father, introducing us to the kingdom of heaven, giving us a tour. The joy was being able to share with That is the centrality, the cross and the resurrection that saves us, that, that purchases salvation, that washes us clean from our sin, that gives us eternal hope and eternal life so that our life, is, our hope isn't just, well, I hope I live to be 80 and then it's over or 90 or 100 or whatever. It's eternal life. That's our hope. And all of that, that faith is a body of doctrine. It's the faith. It's a body of doctrine that is good doctrine. It is about Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. And then, but that faith, the faith, what we call the faith, it only powers us for salvation when we then receive it with faith. So, the faith only becomes the power of salvation for those who believe. Who believe with faith. We are saved by grace. want to talk a little bit more about faith this morning. And I want to continue with a sailing motif, if you'll permit me for another Sunday. Um, some years ago, Janice and I, and I think her kids, met her younger sister, Celia, and, and her family for a vacation at a cabin on the lake. And so this cabin had a small sailboat, and one afternoon, Janice and Celia and I decided to go out and sail. And so we set it all up and, you know, pushed off the dock in the sailboat and raised the sail, and immediately we went nowhere. There was no wind. We just sat there. So, of course, uh, Celia's husband, Bill, 
who I love dearly, he decides this is a source of great amusement. So he comes down, sets up a chair on the dock, and begins to mock us mercilessly while we're just sitting there. And we can't even get out of earshot because we're not moving. And so this went on for a few minutes. But I kid you not, you can verify this with Janice. After a few minutes, a slight gust begins to blow. And we actually began to move a little bit. And there was actually that little wait. And of course, the first thing we're like, let's get away from this guy. And then within a few minutes, the wind was blowing just beautifully. And we got sailed all around that lake and enjoyed that time. And, you know, and just had a wonderful time sailing. And when we came back to the dock, Bill had gone back inside the house, you know, and, and I'd like to think he went back a little humbler than he came. So I want to ask this question, when it comes to faith, which comes first, the sail or the wind? A lot of people, I think, say, you know, when I see God moving, I'll hoist the sail. I'll believe when I see God move. But the Bible tells us that it's the hoisting of the sails that attracts the Holy Spirit. Interesting, his name, he's sometimes called the Ruach HaKodesh, the wind of God. It is the hoisting of the sail that attracts the wind of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. See, here's the thing. God is always moving. He is always working. There hasn't been a minute in history. Now, some points in history, he's moving more powerfully. And sometimes maybe less powerfully, he is sovereign, but he is always moving. He is always working. So my encouragement this morning is hoist the sail. God says, you hoist the sail, I'll send the wind. That's my encouragement to us this morning. With that, let's pray and just ask God to fill our sails this morning with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, so let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word breathes life into us. It breathes hope. It breathes every good reason to have faith in you. Your good promises, your good character, who you are, and what you've done for us, Lord. That is a lot of wind to power us. Help us this morning to hoist sails up to a faith to believe and trust and have faith in your word and your goodness and your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What makes great faith great? I've titled this message, Great Faith Guided by Good Doctrine. What makes great faith great? A lot of people came to Jesus in the Gospels with faith, and they were commended by Jesus for their faith. But only two times in the Gospels is it said of someone that they had great faith. I want us to read those two incidences. The first incident is found in Matthew chapter 8. And I'm reading from the New King James this morning, beginning in verse 5. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralytically tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, 
soldiers under me, I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. The second occurrence is found in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Listen to her cry. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But Jesus answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the little dogs and the crumbs which fall at the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus said to a lot of people, your faith has made you well. But only two people in all of the Gospels are said that they had great faith. And what's interesting is neither of them And I think that's one of the reasons why their faith was great. Because they overcame great obstacles in order to get to Jesus with their need. And I think the second thing about their faith was it gave them insight into who Jesus is. Into his power, into his authority, and into his heart, into his character. Even though we'll talk about. They had so little to work with. Yet they knew Jesus. Great faith overcomes great obstacles to get to Jesus. There were all kinds of obstacles that were keeping them from Jesus. That were that were saying, don't go to Jesus with this. Needy. They are Gentiles. They do not belong to the community of God. The Jews. In fact, both of them are part of communities that are enemies of the Jews. The Roman centurion is part of the Romans who are oppressing the Jews. The Canaan, Canaanites were like some of the Jews, Israel's most uh, bitter enemies from early on in history. So they're outsiders. They're outside of the community of God. They don't have the covenant promises. They can't come and say, Jesus, you promised. They don't own those promises. They are not theirs. They don't have the scriptures to tell them about God, who God is, who this Messiah is. They don't have those things. And yet, somehow, with all those obstacles, they pressed through to get to Jesus. 
and there were Jews who had the scriptures open, who were studying, and they knew all the promises about the Messiah and all of those things. And they were studied and they were knowledgeable, especially the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. That's all they did was study the scriptures. And so they knew all the parameters and the information and the theology and the doctrine and all that about the Messiah. And when he came, they didn't recognize him. And they had no idea who he was. And they didn't even like him. And yet these two, who had none of that, they could see who he was. The centurion looks at Jesus and he says, my servant, who the scripture says he loved like a son, is sick and, ter- and tormented. And for a Jew to go into a Gentile's home and lay hands or do anything would be to make him unclean. Jesus seems willing to do that. Jesus broke all those kinds of barriers. But the centurion said, Jesus, you don't even know what I'm a man under authority and I am over others with authority. And I know that when I say, go and do this, those who are under my authority, they go and do it. And I say to this other one, go and do that, and they go and do that. Speak the word, and my servant will be healed. What faith? You don't even have to come. You just say the word, and I know that that sickness will yield to your lordship. Great faith. He didn't know a lot of Bible, but his faith gave him a deep understanding of the power and the authority who he is with incredible insight. Now, this idea of overcoming obstacles, this is even more true with the Canaanite woman. I don't think anyone in the Gospels has overcome more obstacles to get to Jesus than this mom. She cries out for help. She cries out. She puts her mom's heart right out there. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Help me. Mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Verse 23, but he answered her not a word. She's crying out, and the disciples are tired of it, so they ask Jesus, would you get rid of her, please? Would you tell her to get lost? And he seems to agree that she is intruding. Have you ever been to some place where you're intruding? Like, I'm not just talking about you're at a family gathering and it's not your family. I'm talking about where you feel like you're, you know, intruding on something. It's not a good feeling. Uh, you don't belong here. It's kind of what this feels like. They say, get rid of her. And he, Jesus, he says, I was not sent except. on pressing through the crowd till she's standing right in front of Jesus and she cries out again, help me Lord. This woman is this is a mom whose heart is desperate. She is vulnerable. She is hurting. She loves her daughter. 
And Jesus' response is surprising. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to little dogs. I think I'd have probably turned around by then. I might have even been a little offended. The Jews commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs. I know. seems like Jesus is on his mom, go away. My daughter's not worth my attention. I'm not going to take bread for children and throw it to little dogs. It seems cruel. But Jesus is bringing this conversation somewhere. This mom doesn't give up. She says, yes, Lord. You're right about the bread. But even the, the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus, please give them bread. Please let some bread fall from your table. I know you were sent to Israel. I know you were your mission. Is to Personally, I think at this point, Jesus laughs. I think at this point, Jesus laughs. He says, you got me, man. You got me. You got me. I mean, no matter how great the obstacles we put in front of you, you kept pressing through to me. I mean, there hasn't been the slightest breeze of encouragement, and yet you're hoisting up your sail. You refuse to be pushed away. You will overcome every obstacle. You're going over, you're going under, you're going around to get to me. Let it be as you have desired. Great is your faith. What I want to point out is somehow this Canaanite woman, this mom who had no scriptures, no covenant, no community understood the heart of Jesus better than maybe anybody else in Israel. He said, I haven't found this great of faith in all of Israel. Like those who were prepped for faith didn't have it. And these people who had so little faith, so little to build their faith on, so little to understand who Jesus is, saw his heart. This Canaanite woman saw to Jesus her little girl wasn't a dog. That's how the Jews called them. That's not how Jesus viewed them. Jesus, what the Israel would not yet understand is Jesus didn't view the world in two categories, Jews and dogs. 
John 3.16 does not say, For God so loved the world, He came to save Israel. It says He so loved... Actually, I said that wrong. But He so loved the world, He didn't so love Israel, that He came to save the Jews. Jesus came to save the world. When Jesus saw the world, He didn't see dogs and Jews. He saw souls that He loved. And God loved. And He wanted to save. And the beauty of that salvation is it is spread around the world to every people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every color of skin, every culture, so that people of all types would be praising Jesus Christ. And this precious little girl, no, there's no dogs or Jews. He's not saying she's not worthy, but he is drawing out by obstacle after obstacle. You know, obstacles draw out faith. Wouldn't you love it if every time you prayed for something, five minutes later it was answered? Wouldn't that be great? I'm sick. Lord, heal me. Oh, that was ten minutes. That's a long time, you know. I need provision. You get a check for $10,000 to the mail. Wow, it took a day to get that. Wouldn't that be great? How much faith would you need? You wouldn't need much. It's the obstacles, it's the time, it's the delay, it's the everything pressing against it that wants to press us against faith, but it draws out faith. So I want to encourage you, don't let obstacles stop you from hoisting the sail and believing God. There will always be obstacles. We live in a world of obstacles. That's why they call it faith. Don't say, I'm not worthy to ask anything of God. He's too busy running. Don't let those obstacles. My problem is too big for God to do anything about. I prayed about it, and I didn't get an answer. Uh, and you'll be surprised at the obstacles. I'm trusting God with it. He's fine. I want to have that determination in my life. Trusting God is good. But it's good to ask God for what we want. Faith is not a formula where you put in faith and it spits out whatever you ask for every time. Faith is not a formula. It doesn't always get the same thing. God doesn't always give the same thing. Tim Morland pointed out a couple weeks ago, one time Paul is in prison in Philippi. He's in the Philippian prison. And God shatters the, the doors or cracks them open, breaks the chains, sets Paul free. And so that's how God will always deal with Paul when he's in prison, right? Well, no. When he's writing the book of to the Philippians, he's in prison, and there ain't no earthquake, and there ain't no doors opening up, and the chains aren't falling away. He's stuck in prison, and he may be put to death. Faith is not a formula where you, you believe enough, and you always get the same answer. Hebrews chapter 11 is such a great chapter. If you haven't gone through it recently, I encourage you to read through it. It's sometimes called the Hall of Faith chapter. But what we see in chapter 11 of, of, of Hebrews is some see miraculous intervention. They, the power of God 
They escaped through the Red Sea. They conquered kingdoms. They shut the mouths of lions. They raised the dead to life again. Miraculous intervention. And other times, we see miraculous non-intervention. God does not intervene in the situation. Hebrews goes on to say, others were stoned, imprisoned, sawn in half, poor, and mistreated. Non-intervention. Where is the doors opening up and uh, the saw is about to cut you in half and it stops because God stopped it? Non-intervention from the hand of God. And here's Now listen, if I have a choice, I'd rather raise the dead than be sawn in half by faith. Right, wouldn't you? I don't even know what sawn in half by faith is. Except it's believing God has a purpose in this to glorify his name and for my good. Although right now that's a little hard to see. So I'm believing it by faith as that saw is cutting me in half. shut the mouths of lions, and the ones that were cut in half were commended for their faith. Faith is not a formula. And that's where I think a lot of the, the extreme, I'm talking the extreme, faith teaching can go wrong, because it turns faith into a formula that gets whatever we want from God if we have enough faith. That's wrong. The scripture doesn't say that. And so where the doctrinally inclined can tend to go is everything's just kind of in order. Let's just, you know, and we can do these from our own strength and drift away from a living, active, dynamic, hoist the sail, play faith. And we might float that like when we're not praying for a need, like we're just, we're trying to figure it out. And then we accept it, but we never really fervently pray and ask. Or we're sick. We may go to the doctor, we may do, and all those things are good and good, but we don't fervently ask God to heal, touch us, or we need provision, whatever it is, and we might quote that as trust. God's going to do. Now, 
again, trust is a good thing. There's something wrong with that statement. It doesn't have the power of trust. We stop asking, we stop expecting, and we call it trust in God's sovereignty. But it is not great faith, and it's not even good doctrine. Because what did Jesus say? He said, seeing much wind because you ain't hosting, hoisting up much sail. Now, there may come a time when a prayer that you've lifted up to God, God says, you hear an answer. And the answer might be no. Some of my greatest blessings have come when God said no. God does sometimes say no. But Paul asked three times, Lord, would you take away this thorn in my flesh? Would you take away this thorn in my flesh? Would you take away this thorn in my flesh? God didn't just say, no, I don't feel like it. God said, no, I don't even think I'm going to have any more through this thorn in you because through your weakness, my strength is made perfected. See, even when he says no, there's a good reason for it. sails to hoist. Let's point the compass towards Jesus, speaking of doctrine, and let's hoist the sails of faith. Let's point the compass towards Jesus. Let's hoist the sails of faith. Let believing God. I'm coming to believe that a lot of the That many believers, including myself, have struggled with. I'm not saying this categorically, but I believe many believers that experience dryness, it's not due to a lack of knowledge about the Bible. It's not due necessarily to a lack of doctrine. As much as it is, they don't have, we don't have our sails fastened. We can look at the compass and look at the compass and memorize the compass and still feel dry, still feel weary, still feel discouraged. And I know because I've been there. Doctrine. isn't meant to power us. It's meant to direct us. It's the faith, our faith, that receives the power of the Holy Spirit to live as God means for us to 
live. It is our faith that asks and receives and believes and attracts the wind of God. Now listen, I feel like I need to say this. If you did not listen to last week's message, I encourage you to do that. Because we talk about the vital importance of the doctrine. And I am not doubting doctrine. We need it or we go crazy. We can go into heresy. We can miss God by a mile, miss the gospel by a mile. But I'm not going to say all that I said last week again. But I will say this, I believe. Is we see in Scripture, as we just looked at, who were the two that Jesus said such great faith? It was not the scholars. It was not those filled with doctrine and filled with knowledge. You can know the whole Bible. You can know it forwards and backwards. You can fill your head with nothing but the Bible and have no power to know God, no power to live holy, no power to to see God's working, no power to be saved. Because it does not say we are saved by grace through doctrine. By faith. Faith is the sail that catches the wind that saves our soul. Why? Because faith is the thing that looks up and says, God, I need you. Now you need good doctrine and you end up believing in Haley's Comet or something for salvation. But with that compass pointed at Jesus Christ as our Savior, we then hoist the sail to receive the wind of salvation and then every other blessing that God has for us is through faith in Jesus' name. We know it was Jesus who healed the sick when they came to him. And yet Jesus said to them, your faith has healed you. Your faith or in the case of the paralyzed man, rip through the roof and drop him down and through the crowds with confessions of faith like this. If I touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. Or, Lord, I want my sight. I want to walk. Lord, if you are willing, sat in their houses and said, ah, another Messiah. And never went to him. Never brought that need to him. Never moved towards him. And yet, we've got people that are not even part of the community moving towards him. So I want to I want to I want to conclude by saying don't worry if all you have is a little sail. You know, all you have is Disciples came and said, Lord, give us more faith. He didn't say, okay, you know, here's more faith. He just said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll grow. You plant it. You hoist the sail. It will grow. Hoist the sail. Put it in. Faith grows as we hoist it. Lift up that hand, but not just with words. Hoist some sail when you pray. Pray with faith. Ask with fervor. Don't give up. Ask for what you want.
listen, ask for what you want. Unless, but uh, notice the faith in this. What is it about? It's uh, my servant needs healing. My daughter needs healing. I need healing. It's about people. So another way I think the faith movement gets lost is they make it all about, you know, Lord, I drive a Mercedes. I want a BMW. And I believe you for that kind of, like, I want more stuff. No, make your prayers in faith about your genuine needs, about other people's genuine needs, and about people coming to know God and about Jesus being glorified. Let our faith not take it to, let our faith, faith not be focused on what we want. Like, that's what I'm focused on. Let our faith not be focused on our faith. Do I have enough faith? Do I have enough faith? Let our faith be focused on Jesus Christ. He is the author and finisher of our prayers. Wrapping up these two messages, great.